0: Take A move that I make I give it everything I got Cause that what it takes I push the limit till it break The heart of the brave The soul of a legend With the will to be great Hold up Welcome! <laughs> What's up everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Stephen A. Smith coming at you as I love to do several times every single week. Wherever you can find your free podcast, you can certainly find No Mercy with Stephen A. This edition of No Mercy, as always, we're coming to you from our studios thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel is the official sports betting company of the No Mercy podcast. I'm not going to waste too much time getting into what I'm about to get into because I have a very important guest. Coming up next, you know, in the age of of, that we're living in, there's a lot of noise that's been made about the importance of mental health. Every time we turn around, we're hearing about people having, quote unquote, mental illnesses. They're plagued by adversity. Just feeling overwhelmed by the trials and tribulations that life inevitably throws in most of our directions, the kind of things that folks customarily could have, could handle in the past or were adroit at disguising that they could handle in the past. is no longer the case now more than ever before. When we think about violence in the streets of America, when we think about suicide, When we've seen, literally, folks in the world of sports, for example, the Naomi Osaka's of the world, the Michael Phelps of the world, along with various others, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, and others in the National Basketball Association, the list goes on and on, speak about the issue of mental health and how tough things have been for them, at least at one point in time or another, It's something that's really, really gained the attention of the nation. The Surgeon General of the United States, basically the head doctor for the United States of America, has basically considered it an emergency. Asking for a level of urgency to be attached to the issue of mental health, mental illnesses, even classifying loneliness as a debilitating dilemma that American citizens and beyond have to deal with in this day and age. And really articulating the need to pay rapt attention to this because something needs to be done about it. He's brought it to the attention of the American public. So you know me. You know what I was going to do, right? I want to know more about it. And I wanted to hear about it from the man himself. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. That means the Surgeon General for the United States of America, Dr. Vivek Morthy, right here, up next, with yours truly, Stephen A., on No Mercy, Don't Touch That die. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who's gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is America's doctor. He's the presiding U.S. Surgeon General, and he has the incredible task of keeping the entire country safe from diseases and other dangerous health risks. Please welcome to No Mercy, Dr. Vivek Morthy. It is an honor and privilege, Doctor
1: Morthy. How are you, sir? How's everything? I'm doing great, Stephen A. It's great to be with you as well. And I got to tell you, I'm a big first take fan. Have been for many what? years.
0: What oh, yes. first take fan? I appreciate it, man. Do I yell too much on the show? Do I yell too much? Da,
1: da? Do no, I do that? no, no, not at all. You know what? You know what <laughs> I love about it? You're authentic. You say what you think. Well, I appreciate it.
0: You know what? First question that I'm dying to ask for those out there, because believe it or not, there's a whole bunch of people that don't even know what exactly is the Surgeon General of the United States. What is the Surgeon General? Tell America what that is so they'll know once and for all, please.
1: Absolutely. Well, the Surgeon General is a, <clears throat> the position has been around for more than 100 years, but the Surgeon General's mm-hmm. job is to look out for the health of the country. And that it comes in two ways. Uh, One, the Surgeon General oversees one of the eight uniformed services in the U.S. government. Now, people have heard of the Army. They've heard of the Air Force, the Navy. They may not have heard of the United States Public Health Service. That's a Mm -hmm. a, a uniformed service of 6,000 officers, include nurses and doctors, but we send them all over the country during times of emergency, like hurricanes, tornadoes, or when there are other health risks. The other job, though, the Surgeon General, is to help communicate critical public health issues to the general public. So people know uh, what to do, what to look out for, what to worry about, uh, yeah. and how to protect their families. And that's, uh, that's a more common role that folks know about. And um, hey, there's a lot going on with health right now, so we've been busy.
0: Not the more, everybody's been talking about May being Mental Health Month. We all know that, mental health awareness, I'm sorry. And when we think about it from that perspective, and you talk about the kind of things you look out for, obviously this has been something that you've been speaking about uh, quite a bit. Um, I've seen you on talk shows and what have you talking about this. I, wanna, I want you to tell our audience how, how, how pertinent this issue is, how critical and pivotal this issue has become in the United States of America, mental health.
1: Well, Stephen, I don't say this lightly, but mental health is the defining public health issue of our time, and here's why. When you struggle with your mental health, it impacts other every other dimension of your life because our mental health is a fuel that allows us to show up uh, at work, at home, in our communities. And we know when kids struggle with their mental health, for example, we know that impacts how they perform in school. When adults struggle, we know that impacts how they perform at work. When athletes have a hard time with their mental health, it impacts your performance on the uh, you know on the field on the court but it also mm-hmm. impacts how they uh, respond to adversity whether that's injury or other challenges uh, so mental health matters for all those reasons and right now what we're seeing is that there really is a mental health crisis particularly among youth uh, in this country in the, you know in the decades even a prior to the pandemic there was a 57% increase in the suicide rate among yeah. young people 57% wow. increase and the pandemic poured fuel on that fire uh, and it made things worse uh, for for many folks. And so now what we're, we're seeing is just a terrible situation. Where one in three girls are saying that they are have seriously considered taking their own life. Nearly half of high school students are saying they feel persistently sad or hopeless. And you know th- this is a time when kids, you know, young people are in high school, college. They should be looking forward to the rest of their life. It shouldn't be easy, well, uh, but they should be optimistic. But that's not do, the case. Do
0: we know why this problem has exacerbated to such a degree that it has? Do we yeah, have so an
1: idea. We do, we do, and and it turns out it's. I wish I could tell you it's one thing that it could be solved quickly, but it's actually several things that are happening. I mentioned COVID has made things worse, certainly, um, but there were things happening before COVID, and they include the following. Number, number one, we know that young people have been struggling a lot with with bullying, you know, and that was you know people have been bullied for years, right? But yes. Like when you and I were growing up, like you know, if I did something dumb in in you know in class, like people knew about, it and then I went home. And I wasn't hearing about it, but now with online and offline bullying, kids are surrounded 24/7 uh, by you know by sort of folks who might be tormenting them or abusing them. So that's one reason. I think a second reason has to do uh, with technology. Now, look, tech is is not good or bad, right? It's how it's designed, how we use it, that impacts mm-hmm. how it, uh, you know, how it shapes our life. But right. right now, the experience of social media for many children has actually not been positive. For some kids, it helps them find community and and connect with others. Uh, but we're actually hearing directly from kids themselves and parents and here and seeing this in survey data that for many young people, social media leaves them feeling worse about themselves, especially when it comes to body image. Uh, we're mm-hmm. hearing that <clears throat> many young people also actually end up feeling worse about their friendships, interestingly, online. And, and it turns out you can't replace uh, you quantity—you can't just you know, assume the quantity of relationships translates to quality of relationships. So just having a lot of connections online doesn't mean you have people you can be yourself with, you can be truly open with, you can confide in and get support from. So I think that's the second piece. But the third thing we've got to keep in mind also is that there has been a growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our country that's affected people across the age spectrum uh, from you know, older folks who are retired to middle-aged folks to to young people. But interestingly, young people have the highest rates of loneliness and isolation across the population. How is that? How is that? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? And it's it's not intuitive. And part of the reason, because you might think, well, they're connected all the time uh, on tech. They're talking to each other, texting each other all the time. But this comes back to the fact that it's really about the quality of connections that matters, not the quantity. So yes, you could say the young people are, you know, connected, so to speak. They have the potential to communicate but what's actually happening in that communication. And a lot of it is happening online. A lot of it is happening in mass. And if you ask you know, young people, hey, do you feel that there are people who know you for who you are, who you really are, who you can be really honest with, uh, mm-hmm. who, if you were struggling with a problem, you could go to them and ask for help. A lot of times the question comes back as no. And I do think part of this is related, Stephen A., to the drop in in-person time that we've had. So from twenty. 20- In 2003 to 2019, a 50% drop in the amount of time the young people spend in person with others.
0: But well, see, here's the way it gets interesting to me because you alluded to or you brought up the pandemic and how that's played a role. Yeah. And I get all that that isolationism that kicks in. We get all of that, the, the lack of interaction. But you also point to bullying. And when you and I were growing up, like you said, along with various others, well, bullying took place in our face. Yes. Okay. We wanted to get away. We wanted to be alone because we wanted to get away from the bullies. Okay. That's right. Now, yeah. now, now you're away from them. Okay. You're isolated. You don't really have much to worry about as it pertains to that interpersonal contact rather, or that direct contact. Attack. And now you're telling us that's a reason to be worried too. So where's the happy medium per se, for lack of a better word? How does that get alleviated? Isolationism on one end, the fact that you know in the past that you could interact with people, that was problematic. Now we've got isolationism
1: that plays a role. How do you fix it? It's a great question. So, so here's how I think about it. <clears throat> We know that there's no substitute for in-person interaction. We all need that in our lives. Now, when you and I were, you know, were subject to bullying and many others were when we were growing up, the, the key, the solution to that was not to remove in-person interaction, right? The solution there is like, number one, uh, you know, we we want to surround people with support. Uh, and so like when I came home, for example, like I had a loving family that helped a lot right? Uh, Not everyone has that, I recognize, but that matters. We also want to make sure that we reduce the likelihood that people do act, you know, in ways that are harmful to other people, right? So that's about Mm -hmm. teaching kids. It's about counseling kids. It's about uh, guiding uh, children. And a lot of people, a lot of kids, you know, don't necessarily have that these days. But having some alone time is not a bad thing. You know, we know we all need some alone time, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, like you need some alone time. But if that alone time helps you recharge, if it's time where you're, let's say, reading or listening to some inspiring music or uh, watching a documentary or, hey, maybe listening to first take, who knows? You know, whatever you're doing on on your own, um, that's okay. That can be regenerative. The, The problem right now is when young people are alone, a lot of times they don't want to be alone. Right, and when they are by themselves without other people, they're they're still on their phones and they're scrolling through their social media feeds or seeing what other folks are doing, what people are saying about them. It's not the same, and we know, in fact, that makes people feel uh, feel worse about themselves.
0: It's it's interesting because I, I mean. I was going to ask a question about explaining loneliness and isolation and how that can increase, you know, for risk for mental issues, gotcha. but that's obvious to me. How does it increase the risk for physical issues? Because yeah. I've been told that's a concern. Isolationism, loneliness could ultimately lead to physical issues. Where do we yeah. get that from?
1: So that that's fascinating because you're right that the, the increased risk of anxiety and depression with loneliness might be more intuitive to people. But what we're seeing also is that, you increase the risk of heart disease by around 29%, of the de- risk of dementia among older people by 50% or more. And the risk of premature death, Stephen A, goes up as well. In fact, the increase in pr- risk of premature death with loneliness and with disconnection, social disconnection more broadly, is similar to the risk of premature death with smoking daily. It's yeah. greater than the risk that you see with obesity. And here's why that is, because when we are lonely, that actually, puts our body in a physiological stress state. Now, temporary loneliness, not a big deal. It's like hunger or thirst. You get hungry, you eat. You get thirsty, you drink. You get lonely, you pick up a friend, your phone call a friend, go visit a friend, that might take care of it, you're okay. But think about when hunger and thirst go on for too long a period of time, you start doing damage to your body, right? Yeah. Similarly with loneliness, it literally puts your body in a stress state, and stress states over time, where you have increased cortisol flowing in your body and other hormonal changes, that leads to higher levels of inflammation in the body. And we know that inflammation does all kinds of damage, including to the heart, to the cardiovascular system. So that is likely where we see some of the connection between loneliness and physical illness.
0: Makes perfect sense. I could definitely understand that. I know a bit about them cortisol levels. Adrenal levels, very, very important. People got to pay attention to all of that stuff, Dr. M- Morthy. But let me ask you this. I, read, I remember reading something that you stated in 2019. Now, this is before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. This is before the pandemic hit. You said one in three high school students claimed to have felt, quote, constant feelings of sadness or hopelessness. And that was a 40% increase from a decade before. Yeah. So before the pandemic ever hit, you still had increased feelings of sadness or hopelessness basically spanning from the year 2010 to 2019, you know, just to basic, you know, basically, you know, based off of what I read. How did that come about? What was going on at that particular moment in time that would lead to these kind of numbers?
1: So think that had been building for more than a decade prior to the pandemic. And I think it was a product of some of these factors we've been talking about of, of loneliness increasing uh, over time. And that also coincided with the dramatic increase in social media use, which again was helpful in some ways to, to kids, but also actually increased their isolation in terms of reducing in-person time, quality relationships uh, being more, and more exposure to harmful content, to bullying. A lot of kids tell us that this is what they're encountering online. So those factors were happening as well. And as more you know kids also got online, uh, you know, keep in mind as well that they were also exposed to other harmful content, whether that was violence, uh, you know, other content that made them think, you know, adversely or worse about their bodies, and, and this is mm-hmm. especially true for young girls. So you put that together, and and it's it's a recipe for poor mental health. But one last thing that's worth pointing out is that when when you and I were growing up, if I wanted to turn off the flow of information in my life, you know what I did? Mm-hmm. I turned off the TV. Right. That's it, and then it stopped. Right. But if you're a young person now or a person of any age, the flow of information is constant. It's not stopping. It's coming out as 24 seven. And if you're watching the news in particular, and I'm not talking about the sports news, I'm talking about the new right. news about world events. Right. Then the, the the headlines have trended toward being increasingly negative, increasingly focused on stoking fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're a young person growing up now, as many young people tell me when I do roundtables with them all across the country, they ask me the question: Is the future really better than the past? Because every time I open up a news page, I'm reading right. about all these challenges: gun violence. I'm reading about uh, mm-hmm. climate change. I'm reading about you know racism and discrimination. I'm reading about all these problems. Right. The world seems pretty dark. Well, who's most culpable, Dr. Morthy?
0: Is it the media or is it social media? Because, I mean, it's two different things. I know that we can jumble it all up. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and all of this stuff. I get that. But when you talk about gun violence, when you talk about abortion, when you talk about immigration, when you talk about crime, you talk about a plethora of issues that we see just invading the news, the airwaves on a day-to-day basis... That's the media. What level of culpability, what level of responsibility does the media have in all of this when in the media's eyes, they're simply telling you what's going on?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Look, and uh, what I'm going to talk about is not legal responsibility. That's, you know, I'll leave that to the lawyers. Uh, What I'm talking about is more moral responsibility. That's what I was asking, moral responsibility, yes. Yeah, and and I think, look, I I think in this, at a moment like this in particular, but really I think at all times, we all have to be, cognizant of the impact we have on the world around us, right? I got to think about that as a doctor. So, So let me give you an example. If I was running a hospital and I was taking care of people who came in with heart attacks and pneumonias and other conditions, But it turns out I wasn't necessarily keeping a safe environment. So people were slipping on the floors and injuring themselves. People were getting, you know, line infections from their IVs because, you know, we weren't Mm -hmm. doing a good job keeping, you know, swabbing sites, injection Mm -hmm. sites. If we if we if I was doing all that, you'd say, you know what, that's not a responsible way to operate, you know, I'd Mm -hmm. probably get shut down. But what's happening right now is yes, you want to cover the news, but you know, there are choices being made every day, right? About what headlines you write, about how sensational they are, about how you Mm -hmm. balance positive news. Uh, with negative right. news. Yeah, you can tell people what's happening in the world, but I'll tell you this, Sivanae, I I encounter people all across the country who are doing things to help build up their communities that are really inspiring. People who are volunteering to serve as crossing guards because they wanna protect the kids in their neighborhood. Uh, people who are helping neighbors who can't get to the doctor's office on their own. Doctors and nurses who, are, who put themselves in harm's way day in and day out uh, to try to help people who are sick, right? we don't read about those stories because they don't generate as many clicks. You know, from an right. evolutionary perspective, look, we 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 were designed to survive as human beings, right? So we yes. respond more to fear and anxiety because that might be something that threatens our survival. That was true thousands of years ago when we were hunter-gatherers. And our, the thing is, even though our circumstances have changed, our nervous systems and our brain is still very similar to how it was back then. So if you give me something that stokes fear or anxiety, I'm much more likely to pay attention to it because that's how my nervous system operates. But over time, that really wears you down. Uh, and and that's what we're seeing today.
0: So that fear and anxiety has been fed. It continues to be fed. As a result, we become addicted to it. That's what we're prone to respond to. And as a result, ultimately, it gets to a point where we're simply overwhelmed because it's just too much to take. And that's obviously why mental awareness is so tough. But I got to tell you this, mm-hmm. Dr. Morthy, when I think about it, I think about how we grew up. And you know this as well as I do adversity is coming. It's inevitable. I'm from the streets of New York City. You're from India, if I remember correctly. Is that accurate, by the way? I believe you're from India, correct? Uh,
1: Yeah, my family is from there. I grew up here. Yeah,
0: You grew up here. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. just wanted to make sure that, right? But but adversity is a given. You understand it, and actually your mettle, per se, is measured by what you could take. If you can't take it, to the victor goes to spoils. Those who can take it, they can take it. Those who can't, they're going to flow by the wayside. So if that's still our reality, yeah. where do we go from here from the standpoint, you know, the more issues we can bring awareness to mental disabilities, mental issues and what have you. But, you know, by and large, America is going to be devoid of the compassion necessary to really, really embrace you and help you through it. Where do you go from there?
1: Well, so I want to pick up first on this point you brought up about adversity, because sure. you're Cause absolutely right. W- w- the goal here is not to remove adversity. That's impossible, mm-hmm. right? People are going to have to face adversity. And right. we, want, we want young people in particular growing up to develop resilience, you know, in the face of adversity. We're not going to take that away. Sure. But the way to one of the ways to help develop uh, that resilience is actually to give people, to, you know, allow them to experience adversity, but with the kind of support they need uh, to recover and to get better, right? So I think about uh, you know adversity I experienced, you know, when I was growing up, whether that was uh, racism which I experienced, whether that was yeah. other types of adversity. And I'm not alone; a lot of people have gone through this. Not unique, yeah. but I'll tell you because I had strong relationships at home. I had two parents who loved me. I had um, a, a sister who loved me dearly. I had a couple good friends in the community who had my back. Uh, that helped me be resilient because relationships are buffers to stress right? I mean, think about, you cover the NBA day in and day out, right? Right. Uh, You cover other sports as well. Think about the players you know, right? Who are surrounded by people uh, and relationships that are healthy for them. And then think about the people who are surrounded by unhealthy relationships or are isolated. The group in the second category, they're more likely to get into trouble right? They're more likely to, to have difficulty dealing with adversity when it crops up, whether that's a major injury uh, or that's a trouble in a contract negotiation or something mm. else, or losing, you know, a, you know, a critical game or, or losing in the playoffs, whatever it might be, they're less likely to deal with that or able to deal with that if they don't have a strong relationship. So I think one of the most powerful things we can do for young people is to actually help them build those stronger connections. And if I'm a parent, that means, Making sure my kids actually have in person, in, you know, FaceTime with other people, that they're spending time, uh, you know, with friends uh, in person uh, and with family as well. It means creating guardrails in our lives so that there are certain areas where we don't actually have technology. But
0: but some people would label that pacification. Some people would label that coddling, particularly as we pertain to the sports world. So let's transition to that for a second. I cover the NBA. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you right now, it is very, very clear that Ben Simmons, uh, formerly of the Philadelphia 76ers, now the Brooklyn Nets was really, really struggling mentally and emotionally. I -hmm. watched a guy that people once looked at and said he has the potential to be the second coming of LeBron James to people literally wanting him out of the league Mm -hmm. because literally asking him to shoot a jump shot is tantamount to asking him to go and serve in in, in Ukraine uh, Mm -hmm. against Russia. I mean, this is is how people perceive it when they look at him, uh, literally. And so when you have that kind of situation... It's hard to decipher Dr. Morthy where you draw the line between helping somebody overcome those adverse emotional and mental situations that they find themselves in and in the same breath trying to get them to be productive so you can conjure you you can soak a, produ- a, a level of productivity out of them which you know the world is looking for.
1: Absolutely. How do you
0: how, how do you explain that away?
1: It's a good question and I think I think the key thing is that providing people with support does not mean that they don't need to be accountable, right? Like we all need to be accountable. We all need to be held uh, to high standards, but the people that we surround folks with and the kind of support we provide has to be the right kind of support. Like if we're constantly telling people, you know, don't worry about the standards. Don't worry about, you know, trying to perform, don't push yourself at all, et cetera. People aren't going to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, I think about like moments of adversity that I faced in my life. You know, I was never an NBA player. You know, I had different types of, of challenges, different world. But you know, if my parents, for example, had, had said to me, you know what, just protect yourself from the adversity and you just do whatever you need to do. Relax, you know, just relax as much as you want. Like don't go out there and work hard or train harder, et cetera. That would not have been good for me. Like that's Mm -hmm. not helpful support but my parents what they did is they reminded me of what i could be and who i could be and they pushed me at times right we all need people in our lives whether those are parents friends mm-hmm. you know life partners you know like others who hold us accountable and that's what that's what good people do good relationships do is they remind you of what you're capable of they okay. keep you accountable uh, and they also help you understand when you need to pull back at times
0: mm-hmm. but dr morthy let me give you another example because yeah. i know you like your sports Let's go the route of Naomi Osaka, elite tennis player. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when she broke down crying because she was being booed? Or when she broke down crying because she was literally being asked a question by a reporter? That's Mm -hmm. all it was. Mm -hmm. And it's stuff that she had endured before, but suddenly it was that much more of a challenge for her. I mean, it wasn't even something where she was being scrutinized. I mean, if, 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 you, if you got somebody she's competing against somebody, people want them to win. They want them to beat her. Of course, they're not going to cheer for her. I mean, you're competing on a high level in professional sports. You anticipate stuff like that. Yeah. Yet somehow, some way, it just seemed to be something that she couldn't absorb, that she couldn't take. That's an entirely different situation than Ben Simmons to some degree, at least in a lot of people's eyes. Mm-hmm. How do you resolve that in our minds?
1: So here's how I would think about that. And again, with a caveat that, you know, I I don't know uh, Naomi Osaka's situation directly. Personally, I I don't, I haven't talked to her about it. But the one thing I I think is, look, no one is saying we should change the rules of tennis, you know, so that Naomi Osaka has a different set of rules than anyone else, right? She should we, and we should all be held to the same standards, you know? She's gotta, you know, win six games in a set. You know, she's gotta win two sets in a match. You know, she's gotta do what she's gotta do to win. Uh, That shouldn't change. But when it comes to sort of judging how people react to adversity, um, I think the one thing I've just learned, you know, over time as a doctor sitting at the bedside with lots of patients with different very different life stories, is it's really hard to know someone's full story. What's actually happening in the background. Did they lose a loved one, you know, recently? Did they have some other tragedy in their life that they're not talking about that may have impacted how they're showing up today in the public eye? We don't know that. And so, I do think that one part of this, of approaching mental health in a healthy way is, giving people the benefit of the doubt, we don't know your story, but that doesn't mean we we release people from accountability or from the same standards for success uh, that we apply to everyone else.
0: How do you help somebody deal with adversity better? To develop that intestinal fortitude where they can overcome the level of adversity that's inevitably going to come their way.
1: So I think that one thing that, that you've gotta do is you've gotta, so if you're a loved one, let's say in someone's life, you're a parent, you're a friend, mm-hmm you see you know, someone you love going through adversity, one of the most powerful things you can do is in that moment, just remind them, hey, look, I'm here for you. I've got your back. You know, So you don't got to worry that you're all alone here. I've got your back. The second thing you've got to do sometimes is remind that person what they are capable of. Sometimes people forget. Sometimes they retreat back into their holes. Sometimes they don't believe in themselves, but we all need people in our life who can believe in us in those moments where we've we, we lose faith in ourselves. So that's the second thing that's important to do. And the third thing that's important to do is to push people in the right way, right? Like we all need people who push us as well. I'll tell you, my my, my wife, Alice, she pushes me every day in different ways. Sometimes I don't like it, but you know what? Every day, every time she does it, I know I need it, right? So these are the, you know, sometimes we may call that tough love, we may call it whatever we wanna call it, but love is the key piece of it. Like people need to have folks in there uh, who, who love them, who care for them, who've got their back. Um, those people also, can push them. And that that can be really good for us.
0: We're talking to the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy. He's right here with Stephen A. on No Mercy. Son of immigrants from India, uh, you know, uh, d- discovered the art of healing, watching your parents treat patients in your father's medical clinic in Miami. I mean, that's what I read. Is that true, sir? Just want to make sure that's true.
1: I'll we'll make sure my research is true.
0: Absolutely. Attended both Harvard and Yale, by the way, as well. 19th Surgeon General of the United States from 2014 to 2017. Confirmed again in 2021 as the 21st Surgeon General of the United States. At this moment in time, do you find yourself more worried about this nation and its mental health than ever before? Is yes. it worse now than it's ever been?
1: It's worse now than it's ever been in my lifetime. Mm. Yes. And I, you know, and I've been engaged in public health for almost 30 years now, and yes, uh, this is the worst I've seen it particularly among young people.
0: It sounds like you say that, but it's not just because of the media, it's not just because of social media, it's not just because of being inundated with negativity and what people growing up, people living in our society have to overcome. You, pro- you, you spoke about the moral compass of our nation and how mm. that appears to have been lost. You alluded to it, so I'm going to ask you about it. Mm. Is it just that we're more cruel than we've ever been?
1: Mm. This is a great question, Stephen A., and it gets to the heart of what I worry about, like uh, about our country, because, look, mm-hmm. I love our country. Our country has given me so much and given my family so much. My parents came here with... Very little money, not knowing any people, and what they hoped for, what they prayed for, uh, was that they would land, you know, in a community here that supported them and their kids and gave us a place to thrive. And and I could not have asked for more in public schools and in other opportunities. And here I am, you know, this grandson of a poor farmer from India who has a chance to serve an entire nation. I mean, like America is an extraordinary place. But what I worry about is is the fragmentation and polarization and division that we're experiencing in society. And and I do think that this has to do a bit with, with our moral compass, right? We've gotta ask the question, what are the fundamental values that are driving us as a country? What are they? And when I talk to people uh, in different parts of our country, they know that values are important. They know that when you're faced with a bunch of decisions, the thing that guides you in what to do is often rooted in some value, you know, whether it's fairness, whether it's kindness, whether it's generosity, whatever it may be. But we need to have a, some clarity on the common set of values that guide us as a country. We need to rally around those. We need to shine a light on those values. We need to lift people up who are actually modeling those values. And we need to model those values ourselves for our kids and for others.
0: But how am I able, let me get personal for a second. Yeah, I'd like to know how am I able to do that Yeah, while talking about the throes of competition. I'll give you an example. I'll get personal. Yeah, Being a sports analyst, on television, on ESPN, every day, doing this podcast three days a week, minimum of 10 hours a week, I'm on the air, live, minimum, okay? And I'm talking about the throes of competition. I'm not trying to be insulting or denigrating one athlete over the next. But somebody's winning and somebody's losing. Well, here's why this person's winning. Here's why this person's losing, and then the next thing you know, you see stuff and you see people personalize it to such a degree. And all of a sudden you're worried about feelings being hurt, emotions being compromised, attitudes being affected or what have you. It's difficult listening to you, hearing what you're saying, understanding that you're right and how you're educating all of us for the betterment of, uh, of our society. And I really, really appreciate it. But I'm finding it virtually impossible to maneuver my way through that terrain where I'm able to do my job while also showing the level of compassion, like you said, that would be helpful. I find myself literally talking about athletes. Look, great guy, great person. I wish him nothing but the best, but he shot 20% from the field. I I, I don't know how to
1: offset that. Help me out. So it's a good question, Stephen. And look, I think being kind being compassionate, being generous, which I think are three critical values along with friendship uh, that need to be at the heart of how we rebuild uh, the, the strength and the well-being of our country. Operating from those values does not mean that you can't be honest. It doesn't mean that you can't be authentic. It doesn't mean you can't offer criticism. If somebody loses a game and you think they did not rise to the level that they needed to, if you thought they had more in the tank that they could have brought, Uh, if you think that their talent is greater than what they put on display that day, you can say that. That's not being unkind. That's not being uncompassionate. And look, I've actually, I've seen you do this, uh, you know, on on First Take and other shows before where you will criticize an athlete, but you will caveat it. You'll say, look, I know this person is extraordinarily talented. I know they deserve to be paid, uh, you know, for their talent, but I am worried and I don't think that what they're doing in this situation is right. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? That's yeah. a very human response. Yeah. I think it's it's as much a it's a problem if we go to the other extreme and if we say, you know what, we're gonna be in the interest of kindness, we're gonna use that as an excuse never to yeah. offer criticism or never to be honest with people about how they're doing. And that's why I am worried that some part of society is in today where we we get so scared sometimes to be honest about how we feel about a situation because we're worried people yeah. will retaliate, will feel like, right. you know, put upon that we're not honest. And that has its own consequences.
0: But here's where I would offer or pose a challenge as it pertains to mental awareness. You're talking about there's nothing wrong with telling the truth. Mm -hmm. You're celebrating somebody. You throw that caveat in there. There's nothing wrong with telling the truth about a situation. But that's about the truth, and that's about a pragmatic, realistic approach to what you're doing. With mental awareness, it gives the impression what our concern should really be about is how we make others feel. And you never know how somebody's going to feel from case to case, which is what makes our society overall challenging. You walk down the street, you bump into somebody. Oh, my! excuse me, I apologize. I didn't mean to bump into you. No problem. The next person you bump into might cold cock you. Mm-hmm. They might hit you. In mm-hmm. today's day and day. You don't know what you don't know what on earth they're going to do. That's the society that we're living in, going block to block, street to street, city to city, state to state. You don't know how anybody's going to react. Mm-hmm. And that's what scares me about mental awareness because everybody's looking for an answer. We want to resolve issues. And it seems to be unresolvable.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. And look, it is a big, the mental health struggles we're facing are enormous and they can feel overwhelming at times. Sometimes you feel like, hey, what can we do really as one person? But I think a couple of things are worth keeping in mind. One is that mental health is more than about how you make somebody else feel. Right, and because it is not, and it is impossible to always make everyone around us feel good. And if we try to do that, we will drive ourselves, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, off the wall. And actually, frankly, we won't serve them either. Right? Mm -hmm. I think about when we we withhold feedback in the workplace because we're scared to make somebody feel, you know, feel bad. That's bad for everyone. Right? So I do. But there is a way to be honest and to be kind. Those two things are not in in contrast with one another. But I think the second thing to keep in mind is how people react isn't always about us and what we do. A lot of times it's about what's happening in their own life. Like you may be perfectly kind to somebody, but they react, uh, you know, in a very negative way toward you. You might give them right. kind feedback, but they lash out at you, you know, and say that you're insensitive and you're being brutal. That may be more about them. What we can control Ooh. is where we come from, uh, how we weave kindness into our honest, you know, communication with other people, and. You know, the, the bottom line is that, you know, we've got to strike that balance, but it's a balance that can be struck. You know, I mean, I've seen you do that on the airwaves. I think many of us have to do that in the workplace every day. If you're a parent out there of a child, you know that you have to do this because you know that if you just give your child everything they want and everything that they're asking for, so that they're happy every moment of the day and never upset with you. Uh, you're going to fail as a parent, right? Your, your children will not be uh, served as well as they need to. So Ooh. there's a way to, to be kind, to be honest, to tell people right. what they need to hear. Um, and th- that's what we're striving for here. The, the problem, the last thing I'll say, Stephen, though, is when we operate, though, without an anchoring in those core values, you know, of kindness and generosity, uh, of service and, a, yes. and friendship, that's, I think, when we run into problems, right? Because then yeah. what is what's guiding us, right? Like mm-hmm. if we don't have a moral compass, then we're lost.
0: You've stated that since the pandemic, sixty-six percent of nurses have considered resigning because of burnout and exhaustion. I want to know how much danger our healthcare system is in because of this mental awareness issue that you obviously have educated us about.
1: Well, it's pretty significant, uh, Stephen. You know, I, I issued a, a year ago uh, a Surgeon General's advisory on health work or burnout for exactly the reason you just mentioned because we have more than 50% of nurses who are saying they wanna lead their clinical practice. About a quarter of doctors are saying the same thing because burnout has been increasing. But just like the broader mental health problem, burnout among doctors and nurses actually was a real problem even before the pandemic. The pandemic added fuel to that fire. And we are unfortunately seeing that threaten our ability to provide emergency care, primary care uh, to people around the country. That's why what you know myself and many others are now working on medical societies as well is seeing how can we do a few things uh, for our clinical providers on the front lines? How can we make sure, one, they have actual, have access to mental health support, which many of them don't, uh, mm. two, that the quality of their work is better as well. A lot of them find them that they went into their work to take care of patients, but instead they're spending time filling out forms in duplicate and triplicate you know battling with insurance companies for prior authorizations to get the medications uh, that they know their patients need Um, so we got to improve the quality of the work itself um, but we've also got to make sure that we're uh, supporting uh, you know our our clinicians in in being able to spend the time uh, with patients that they need and you know there's no doctor i've ever met who said you know what i went into medicine because i wanted to to chart to spend time in front of the electronic health record every day Um, And they're spending in primary care practice twice as much time in front Mm -hmm. of with administrative tasks than with patients. So these are the things that we're now working on fixing. And we've gotta do it fast because we need doctors and nurses and other health professionals. Uh, We need more, in fact, not less.
0: It's interesting because like you said, some people, you also said this earlier, some people refusing to go to the doctor or even sometimes to the emergency room out of fear, cost, bills and all of this other sure. stuff. And then when you combine that with the kind of indes- the kind of discussions that we've been having, there's a big time reason to be co- concerned about America's health. Because you've got people that are not getting healthier because of mental awareness, because of mental health issues, obviously, physical issues as well. And then we got doctors and nurses that want to leave the business. So we're definitely in a bad state of mind. My last question to you would be this, though. As a person involved with sports, some of the best athletes in the world, mm-hmm. um, obviously, that face challenging, challenging times, known for overcoming a lot of adversity and what have you. The sports world in particular seems to be an area that could provide a strong level of assistance towards overcoming the kind of issues that you spent time highlighting on this interview with me, sir. Could you speak to that? Do you believe that? And if so, how specifically? Can the sports world and I'm only asking because I'm somebody that's associated with sports all day, every day, no matter how many people I interview, talk to, and 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 and, and you know, communicate with. Your thoughts about what the sports the sports world could do to take us in a positive a positive direction moving forward.
1: Absolutely. I think the sports world can do a lot. Uh, you know, something I've talked to Adam Silver about, you know, a number of times. He's a good friend yes. and to others My buddy. as well. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a great man. Yeah. Uh, yes, and to is. Roger Goodell and others, you know, like this is you know And they all, you know, both Adam, Roger, and others, you know, very much understand that mental health is a crisis in our country. Uh, And what I've shared with them is what I'll share with you, which is that there's a huge role, I think, that sports and that athletes in particular can play uh, in this area for the whole country. I think, number one, that talking more openly about mental health, which a number of athletes have done, whether it's DeMar DeRozan, you know, Kevin Love, others, that actually helps so many young kids around the country who say, hey... Maybe to be strong doesn't mean that I can't ever talk about my feelings or can't admit that I'm struggling or ask for help. Uh, maybe right. it's okay to ask for help. Makes a big difference. The second thing that's really important is for for athletes to be able to to talk to young people about about what it's like to actually get help. You know, to. They, Going to see a counselor, hey, demystify that a little bit. Talk about that. That's not as scary as experience as as it might seem to be from the outside. Athletes can also help get information out. Like we now have a crisis line, it's 988. Just like we have 911 for emergencies, you know, for if there's a fire in your house or a medical emergency. We now have 988, which is a crisis line. Anybody can call or text if they're having a mental health concern or emergency or if somebody around them is. Um, Athletes can help get the word out about that as well. And finally, I think athletes can help in sharing their stories to help young people understand where real success comes from, right? Like when, if, you're, if you're on the outside, and I talked to a lot of young kids who are in sports leagues right now and to college athletes as well. Uh, I do a lot of roundtables with college mm-hmm. athletes. Um, right. And a lot of them think, okay, well, you know, these professional athletes are successful because they've got a lot of skill, because they work, you know, because they practice a lot. They work out a lot. They're strong. They don't realize strong. how
0: much the mental plays a role in their success. They don't really realize that.
1: That's exactly right. And, but, you know, you talk to people who are the top of their game, you know, whether it's LeBron James or whether it's others. And, you know, they very clearly, as many of them do publicly talk about how it's a physical and mental game together that make you truly elite, right? That can make you really successful. And that applies not just to sports, right? That applies to every dimension of our life, whether you're in business or whether you're, you know, in entertainment, wherever you may be. And so being able to talk about the other factors that go into success that we don't explore very often uh you know building the right relationships you know with family and friends and investing in those relationships dealing with how we use technology in a healthy way, like a, how should a young person, for example, draw the right boundaries around their use of social media so that it helps them and doesn't hurt them? Like these are the kind of things I think athletes can be incredible role models on and examples if they if they talk, you know, openly to to young people around the country about it. So I think there's a lot that sports can do. You know, I think it, it, sports are one of the few areas in our country right now that truly bring people together across all, uh, you know, per- political persuasions, and and there's real value in that. But we also need um, we need role models you know, for, for young people. We need people to be able to talk honestly to them about uh, what's happened in the world, but also how to get through it. And I think athletes yeah. can make a big difference there.
0: Dr. Vivek Morthy, U.S. Surgeon General. It has been an honor and a privilege to talk to you. So I really, really appreciate this, this time. It's been very, very enlightening. I, I mean, and now if you see me on television or you hear me on my podcast and I sound considerably nicer, <laughs> take credit, take credit. It's because of you you did this okay you did this so if you see me and you're, and you're watching me on television you say what the heck is going on how come Stephen a i mean he usually goes harder than this he seems a bit kinder than usual
1: that would be because of you sir oh I, it's very kind of you but hey listen if uh, if molly and jj and the rest of the gang get upset with you for being too nice then you can right. blame me too so i will
0: <laughs> thank you so much sir. i really appreciate it. all the best to
1: you all right thanks so much all the best to you too take care
0: This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Great interview, great conversation. A lot of lessons to be learned, a lot of wisdom that was espoused to all of us. But Dr. Morthy, really really appreciate his time. The Surgeon General of the United States really came on here and gave us food for thought. No question about it. I thank him for his time, um, his efforts, uh, the energy that he's putting forth to this noble cause because it is a noble cause. It's something that we've got to eradicate. No question about it. Um, And to provide the perspective that that he provided, I really, really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of No Mercy. We'll be back with more episodes in the days to come. You know where to look for me. You know why. This is Stephen A. signing off and reminding you, as always, you don't have to know sports to know mercy. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.